Uh, we'll read together and we're picking up <clears throat> at verse 26. This is God's words. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Let's leave the reading just there. And uh, we're going to think together about these verses that we've just read. They're probably quite familiar to you. And uh, that, that, that probably won't be the last time we'll hear them this year. You know, it's a fairly familiar text, isn't it? Um, coming into the Christmas period. And that's the point uh, with this teaching series. We're examining uh, Luke chapter 1 together. And, um, and really, uh, the, the overarching message is that hope is here. That's what Christmas is all about. Hope is here. Um, last week, we were thinking about how to receive hope. And we looked at the, the, the narrative section about the angel, the same angel, visited Zachariah. Um, and uh, his wife was called Elizabeth, and they're an older couple, much older couple, and through the angelic message, they were promised that they were going to have a baby as well, another miraculous baby. His name was going to be called John, uh, soon to become John the Baptist, and he was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The Lord was coming, the Messiah's here, and, and John, John's role was to prepare the people for that coming. Um, and, and what we have here in these verses we've just read is that the, sh the, the scene shifts from the, the, the Jerusalem temple to uh, a small town called Nazareth. And so what we'll see over the next few minutes as we're thinking about these verses together are, are three ways uh, that God gives us hope, okay? Three ways God gives us hope. And we'll see, number one, God gives us hope in salvation. Number two, we'll see that God gives us hope through grace, and number three, God gives us hope by faith. So hope in salvation through grace by faith. I think if we understand these things a little better this morning, that will stir our hope in what God has done for us in Jesus. So first of all, God gives hope in salvation. Um, getting right to the heart of the, the message of the angel in verses 31 through to 33, the angel says to, to Mary, you're going to conceive and you're going to bear a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. Okay? Jesus was not an uncommon name at that time. In fact, in, in other sort of non, I suppose, English-speaking countries, um, you know, Jesus would still be a name in Spanish-speaking countries, etc. It would be, still be a name that would be used quite frequently. Um, but having said that, the word or the name Jesus literally means Savior. 
or it means the Lord saves, something like that. And, and, and so uh, even though that wasn't a unique name for Jesus of Nazareth, it certainly gives us a hint about what the angel intends will be his role as he grows. And, and he goes on, doesn't he? His name's going to be Jesus, which means saviour. And, and this character, it says in verse 32, um, it says he will be great. You know, he, he'll be magnificent. He's going to be a splendid individual of high importance. Um, if you were with us last week, you, you, you'll maybe remember that John the Baptist, um, or John, as the angel said, is going to be great before the Lord. But here we have someone who is going to be great full stop. The Savior is going to occupy a higher level of greatness than even John, who is going to be great before the Lord. This Savior called Jesus is going to be unqualified greatness before the eyes of everybody. Unrestricted greatness. There will be none higher than this individual, this baby, who will be born to Mary. He goes on to say uh, he will be called the Son of the Most High, otherwise known as the Son of God. Um, and to be a son of God, and particularly uh, in the Old Testament sense of that word, um, would have been applied to the kings of Israel. Okay, there's a special um, title that would have been given to, to those who came from the line of the great King David, who was the king over Israel. Um, they would have been known as sons of God. Um, and so we get the idea here that Jesus, this one to be born to Mary, is going to be a, a, a king. He's going to be a, a son of God. In that sense, he's going to be uh, one who will reign on the throne of his father David. It says that. And, and we're sometimes familiar with, with, with Jesus being the, the son of God. Maybe familiar with Jesus even being the son of Joseph, who sort of later on appears on the scene. <coughs> but here we've got him being called the son of David. Um, and that's kind of confusing, I think, on, on some level, because uh, Jesus... Uh, I suppose, in, to use our language, doesn't really have a biological father. Uh, he, he doesn't have a birth. There's quite, sorry, a, a conception that's quite standard. Um, in fact, we'll see that in a minute. He was born whilst Mary and Joseph were, were engaged, however, and, uh, and uh, a child born in that circumstance during the engagement period was legally recognized to be the offspring of the husband-to-be. That's how it worked under Jewish law in those days. And so, as we, as we see, uh, Joseph was a distant relative of David. That's why they end up in Bethlehem for the census, um, the family land. And so, legally speaking, technically speaking, Jesus himself is a son of David. He's from uh, the, the, the kingly line. Why is all this important? Why am I, why am I sharing what, what might sound like uh, needless information? Well, uh, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because God made promises to his people years earlier that there will always be a son of David on the throne. There's always going to be someone who will rule on behalf of God, who will reign in peace and in justice. And, and that was the case for many generations through the history of the people of Israel. You can read about it in the, in the, in the books of, of Samuel and, and the Kings and Chronicles and all the rest of it. And so for many generations, this was the case. There was a son of David on the throne. And yet hopes were dashed when God's people were eventually, because of their, their rebellion and their sin and their rejection of God, they were eventually sent off into exile in Babylon. And so the kingly line was dethroned. It was, it was, it was halted. There was no king. There was no son of David. 
And yet several hundred years passed from that exile, and yet that hope lived on. And that hope was stirring, that hope in the promises of God that there will always be a son of David on the throne. And so fast forward to Luke chapter 1, when this angel appears to Mary in the middle of nowhere and announces that you're going to give birth to someone of such greatness and such magnitude that he will be a son of David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, that is God's people forever, and his kingdom will be no end. Hope is here. And some of that terminology you might start to recognize, because again, another famous Bible passage that's often read at Christmas time comes from Isaiah chapter 9, and it starts like this. You've, you've heard this before. For unto us a child is born. You heard this one? For unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You've heard all that. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and his kingdom, he will sit to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, the son of David with his eternal kingdom. And the angel is saying, this is about to happen to you, Mary. This is happening now. Hope is here. The kingdom of God is finally breaking in. It is coming. The promises are being fulfilled in your day to restore God to his people and people to one another and nation to nation. This is happening, Mary. This is coming. Luke is um, simply content to state the angel's message. He doesn't explain or qualify the terms that he's using to apply to this special baby that will come. In fact, he, he unfolds the descriptions of, of the king who, who, who is the savior. He unfolds that as the gospel account continues. And as you read on about the life and works of Jesus, you'll see how these things come out. You'll see in his teaching, in his actions, his claims that, that his greatness is truly amazing. It says people were astonished at him. But surprisingly, and I, and I think even more amazingly, is exactly how he achieves his greatness. Uh, because I think it's surprising to see someone who is tipped to have such a great beginning, such a great person, beginning so humbly. How can greatness come in such humility? Uh, for example, the small town of Nazareth was considered to be a sort of uh, uncultured, you know, backwater, far removed from the sophistication, uh, the urban feel of, of Jerusalem. And so when you read the, the little snippets we get about Mary and elsewhere about Joseph, her, her husband-to-be, you don't get a, a hint of, of, of privilege about these two or, or status of either of them. Far from it. They're from a small town. They were working people. Joseph was a carpenter. You know, we, we might use the term working class today. That's, that's, that's the kind of thing. They're from the north, you know, hardworking individuals, just normal people, unremarkable. And yet that is how this great savior and king came about. And I, I think if we, if we want to understand the, the Christmas message, if we want to understand the gospel, and we want to understand salvation, <coughs> salvation itself, we need to see that this person, Jesus, is simultaneously great and he is humble. If we're going to get him, he's, he's the servant and he's the king. And, and I think as we read the gospels, in, in, in his day, in Jesus' day, 
He was misunderstood and despised largely because of that. People just couldn't get their heads around the fact that he was humble and yet he was also great. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't bring those two things together. And if we want to understand Christmas, we have to. We have to understand that that's who Jesus is. If we just see Jesus in his greatness alone, right, his, his majesty and his, his high uh, office, if we see him just as that, let's say, then, then we might marvel at him, but to us he will seem inaccessible and unapproachable and so irrelevant in some way, so remote. He's, he's, he's such a different class to us that the divide is too great. Alternatively, if we only see him as that humble one, as, as just like us, we'll appreciate him as a good man who did well despite his humble beginnings, but he will not be able to be much help to us in the long term. He, 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 he can't uh, do much for us if he's too humble. In our moment of greatest need, he may have been a wise man and a good teacher, but he can't do much about me and the darkness I go through. But the message of Christmas that we see here in, in seed form, in, in this message from the angel, the gospel is that Jesus is both. He, he, he is great and he is humble. Um, he has the command of the angels at, at, at the word of his mouth. He has eternal rule and reign. He has the victory over all of his enemies, but he is also one of us. He's humble. He knows what it's like to suffer, to feel the weight of the world on his shoulders. In fact, I would say he knows better than any of us what it's like to have the weight of the world on his shoulders. He knows what it's like to go through darkness, darker than you and I will ever experience. Because he went to the cross. Only a great one can save people. But only a humble one can save you. What a, what a complete saviour he is. He is both. God gives us hope in salvation. And his name is Jesus. Uh, but the second thing we see in, in this text here is that the, the God gives hope through grace. Okay? He's given us his son, Jesus. He gives us hope through grace. We've seen the kind of saviour that, that Jesus is going to be. But we also see how that works out for us, how through grace we can receive that. Grace, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with the term, our working definition, I think it's sort of helpful for today, is it, grace is God's unearned favor. Grace is God's unearned favor. In verse 28, for example, when the angel meets uh, Mary or appears to Mary at the first place, he says, greetings, O favored one. And he goes on to say in verse 30 about Mary, he said, you have found favor with God. Okay. God has bestowed his grace on Mary. He, he has shown his unearned favor to Mary. He has shown her grace. This word favor, um, in the original uh, Greek, um, the, the New Testament was written primarily in Greek, uh, the, the original word is charis. That's where we get the, word, the name charis from. Um, favor, charis, the Greek word, um, otherwise translated as grace in other parts of the New Testament. 
Um, and this became and is a very significant term for Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts, which is like the, the, the volume two of his works, because it describes for Luke what God does for his people out of his good pleasure. He uses this word every time, favor, grace, grace of God was on them. And here he's using that word to apply to Mary. God shows his unearned favor upon her simply because he chooses to show his unearned favor upon her. Um, we're not given here the picture or the sense that Mary has done anything to earn that favor. It is all of grace. It is all from God to her. Um, let's examine some of the details that we do know about Mary to, to give us a, a broader picture. And we can compare her to Zechariah from the previous um, story, the previous part of the narrative. Um, Mary is a, you know, a young uh, girl, a young woman, um, possibly anything from like 15 to 18 years of age, something like that. Um, she's a young woman, she's unmarried, and therefore in the eyes of her contemporaries, she would have been on a fairly low step of the social ladder. Today, we wouldn't think the same thing so much, but, but certainly she would have been considered quite low down in the pecking order of, of uh, contemporary society in those days. Zachariah, on the other hand, was a respected uh, priest. He was an older man. She uh, was from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, there's, there's one episode where uh, Jesus was calling the first disciples, and uh, when one of the first disciples heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, that disciple said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? It just had that reputation of being a place where you don't want to be from or don't want to be associated with. And here we see Mary, that's where she lives. She's from Nazareth, and yet Zechariah was visited uh, in the altar in, in the temple of God in Jerusalem. You couldn't get a higher, more sacred place than that. She was just getting on with ordinary life when she was visited by the angel. He was offering incense in the temple when visited by the angel. He was well regarded as righteous and blameless. She is basically unknown, obscure, and disregarded by most in her society. And yet, and yet, in the eyes of God, Mary is a favored one. He put his grace upon her. And he said, you will conceive and you will bear a son and not just any son you're going to bring forth a savior a king she was not from noble birth she was not from a privileged background she was not brought up as a princess she was not even from a great town and yet God saw her he sent his grace upon her she found favor in his eyes that's how it works for us. That's how it can generate hope in us as we understand how God operates among us. Because much like Mary, God chooses to show favor to his people. In the gospel, God says to you and me, he says, here is my son. He is the savior. He is, he is my king and he has come to save you. He is great and he is also lowly. See how he lived. He lived that for you. Hear his teaching. He taught that for you so you might know me. When he died, he died for you, in your place and for your sins. 
When he rose, he rose for you that you might share his resurrection life. When he ascended to the right hand of uh, my right hand, the Father, he did that for you so that he can represent you to me, that he can pray for you, he can intercede for you. That is favor. That is grace upon you. He didn't choose you because you earned it or or because your behavior necessitated his grace or because of some seed or a glimmer in the future in you that he sees and he says, oh yes, I'm going to give grace to this person here. That's not what changes his mind about you. If we wait for any of that stuff in our lives before God shows us his grace, none of us would receive salvation. It is his unearned favor. It's so important to understand this. It's so key to the gospel, so key to Christmas, and yet it is so scandalous. Scandalous, the original word means a stumbling block. Grace is a stumbling block for so many. Why is it so scandalous? Why is it a stumbling block? When we look at Mary today with 2,000 years of Christian thought and history, we look at this Young woman, she's wonderful, she's full of faith, she's blessed, and we've, we've sat through enough Christmas nativities to know that she's a pretty special person. And that's all true. But that is not at all how she would have been viewed at the time by her contemporaries. We've just discussed some of those reasons already, the social uh, status that she had, very low. Add to that the fact that she is unmarried and she is soon to be with child. They would have assumed that she had, had you know, been sexually immoral. There would have been an outcry in her town. She would have been the subject of shame and disrepute for the rest of her life. And yet God's favor and grace was upon her. And it's, grace is, is scandalous. Because the people we think shouldn't receive grace and favor are the ones who often do receive it. And that's the point with grace. It is scandalous. We might say to ourselves, well, they haven't proven themselves enough in my eyes to receive God's grace. They are unworthy recipients, that person that God has called worthy. We don't like it. It's, It's a stumbling block. Grace makes us uncomfortable. It is unsettling. Especially, I would say, to, to, to those who are, you know, let's just say the religious types. Why, why does grace trouble us so much? I think a lot of religious people um, can claim they believe in grace. They can understand it, but they behave and think as if it's something you have to earn. Uh, this religious mentality, if you have that, uh, pe- you know, pe- people will spend their lives trying to get into God's good books, trying to earn his favor somehow. Uh, the religious mentality, you will think deep down to yourself, I've deserved God's favor and his blessing. Through this action I've done, through this work that I've been adding to, through my behavior, therefore God must show me his favor. That's the religious mentality here. And so when we see grace in other people, if that's the way that we think, and we see that they're not playing by my rules about how it should be, then we get angry. We get frustrated. We, we become proud. We say, how dare God show grace to them? They haven't met my standards. I've been busting my gut trying to be a good boy and a good girl. 
And along comes so-and-so, enjoying the favor with God without even trying. It just messes us up. We don't like it. Grace is scandalous. Interestingly, the gospel writer who um, uses this word grace more than any other also, Luke, that is, also told the story, this famous uh, teaching from Jesus called the parable of the prodigal son. And in that uh, story, you're probably familiar with it, uh, the, 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 the man, the father, has two sons. And the younger son says, give me my inheritance. He wants the money before the old man's dead. And the younger son gets his inheritance. He goes off to a, f- a faraway place. And he squanders the the money, he, he, he blitzes it, he parties, he gets wrecked every night. And this goes on and on and on until he's run out of money and run out of favor with people. And he's a mess and he's down and he's homeless and he's just con- contemplating eat, eating the food that they give to the pigs. That's how bad he got. He was totally empty. And when he'd come to the end of himself, he, he realized what a fool he'd been, what an idiot. And, and, and yet he returns, he turns to the father and he says, maybe he will take me back as one of his servants. And so the story goes that the father notices the son returning from a long way off. He, the father, that is, runs to the son. He blesses him. He receives him home. He, he forgives him of his offenses. And they have a party to celebrate the son returning home. But the bit we often don't major on so much is the older brother because the older brother lurks in the background. And the older brother is not at all impressed that the young one has come home. In fact, he is furious. He sees the grace taking part in front of him, and yet he despises it. Because the older brother inhabits or embodies this uh, religious mentality. He should have been in celebrating at the return of his younger brother, and yet he was outside, stubbornly refusing to celebrate. He says to his father, the older son says, all these years I've served you, I've never disobeyed you, and you've never even given me a goat to have a party with my friends. This wayward son of yours has come home, and look at what you've done. You've killed the fatted calf, and you've lavished him with grace. It seems to be that the older son has spent his life trying to earn the father's favor, and yet he has missed it completely. The father finishes the story by saying, you have got this all wrong, son. All that is mine is already yours. Don't you see? You're not working for me to earn it. You're working because you're my son. It was necessary for your brother who was dead and is now alive. He's been lost, and now he is found. That's why we're celebrating. If it was left to each of us to earn our salvation through any means, then no one would ever make the grade. Even the most religious person that you can conceive of cannot win the favor of God. It's just impossible. But when you understand and receive grace It is a game changer. You see it upon Mary. You see it upon the younger son in in the parable of the the prodigal. You see it upon one another here in our community. When you see grace and when you understand it, it is a game changer. It is freeing because you understand, I can't receive this favor. I can't earn it, sorry. But yet it's been given to me 
by God who has chosen to favor me. Therefore, you could be free of your guilt, thinking you're not pleasing him enough. You could be free of your striving, thinking you're not doing enough to earn his favor. That's not how it works with God. You could be free of the uncertainty of knowing, am I in his good books or not today? Of course you are. He has put his favor upon you. It's an old hymn that just sums it up beautifully. Amazing grace, how can it be that thou, my king, should die for me? When you see the grace of God through the gospel, it's a game changer. It'll free you. Stirs us hope. So God gives hope through salvation in Jesus. He gives us hope through grace, his unearned favor. Thirdly and finally, he gives us hope by faith. By faith. Uh, This announcement that the angel gave to Mary is utterly stupendous. It does not happen every day. It's just very unique. You're going to bear a savior, the God child you are going to conceive, says the angel. And in verse 34, she asks a question that, that you and I, or many of us would have asked in that situation. Anyway, how will this be since I am a virgin, she says. Quite right. She needs the details about how this is going to go. The Greek literally says, how will this be since I do not know a man? What she's saying is, I'm not sexually active. It describes her in this uh, relationship here in verse 27. She is betrothed to Joseph. Uh, Betrothed elsewhere is translated uh, pledged. We would use the term engaged. But our engagement is is, is a sort of informal agreement, I suppose. Uh, For them to be pledged or to be betrothed was legally binding. And it was part of a two-stage marriage process that would have taken part uh, in the Jewish community in the ancient Near East. At the first stage, you would be betrothed to one another, uh, legally bound, and yet uh, to be formalized a year later where you go and live, uh, as the wife goes and lives with the husband together. And that's where sexual activity begins in the context of marriage. And that teaching still applies, by the way, to us today. Sex belongs inside of marriage. It's part of God's design. It's part of his intention. Much like, I suppose, uh, petrol in a car or blood in the body, in its right and proper place, it is good. It is life-giving. It it leads to growth. It leads to depth. It leads to deeper relationship. But like petrol outside of a car or blood outside of the body, sex outside of marriage, is it, it pulls away from God's design. It actually drains life. It damages in the long term. It's dangerous in the wrong place. And so Mary was asking, well, as wonderful as this is, how can it be? She knows how babies are made. And so she's sort of asking, I suppose, do you want me to break this marriage covenant? Do we need to, you know, conceive now? Or do you want me to wait till we're married and have this wonderful child in two years' time or something like that? Good questions. So the Holy Spirit, sorry, the, uh, the angel clarifies in verse 35. He says, no, 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 none of that. Um, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you and you will conceive. This is not going to be an ordinary thing, Mary. The power of God, the creative power of the Holy Spirit will do his work in you. Not your husband or anyone else for that matter. Therefore, he says, the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. He will have remarkable, astonishing origins. Unlike anyone who has ever been and ever shall be. Only God can can bring life out of nothing. 
And that's what he's doing here. And the angel uh, continues and finishes off and consolidates and encourages Mary. He said, look, look at Elizabeth, your relative. They used to call her Baron, Baron Elizabeth. There she goes again, Baron Elizabeth. But now she is in her sixth month. She's having a baby too. See, nothing will be impossible with God. What a great line. Just watch and see. Look at her, he says. That same thing is going to happen to you, except even more remarkable, even more amazing and miraculous. Nothing is impossible with God. God's plans shall come to pass. The barren shall become fertile. The virgin shall give birth, both by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in his people. And when that happens, the impossible is made possible. Does this stir your hope? Does this grow your faith in what God can do? I hope so. Mary gets it in verse 38. Behold, she says, I'm the servant of the Lord. She, she hears the message of the angel. She trusts it. She, that's called faith. She, she gives herself to it. I'm the servant of the Lord. She says, I, you know, I accept your calling on me. Be, be it to me according to your word. I trust that what you said will happen, she says. I'm going to give myself to the truth of that message in response. That's faith. Faith, you see, is grounded in God's word to her. Yes, it's an astounding word. Yes, it is utterly unheard of in normal life. But she hears the truth. She trusts it. And she says, yes, I accept it. I believe it is true. And I give myself to it. That is faith. See, for us, God comes to us and speaks to us. And his message is the message about salvation. Um, his, his saving plans in the world, he, he gives that to us. Through, and through, through his word to us, as he shares his plans for salvation, he is inviting us to take our place in his grand story, his grand plans to redeem and reconcile and restore that which is broken and messed up and dark, he is going to sort the whole thing. And like Mary, God points us forward and he says to us, just watch my plans unfold. They are happening right in front of you. We have, we have much more detail now than Mary did then, don't we? Because we have seen the stories of Jesus and we, 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 we were told what happened to him and we've seen uh, 2,000 years of, of thought and, and, and uh, you know, belief working this through to us. We have more than Mary did. And through God's word, God says to us, I will enter your world and I will give you my son and he is the king and, and his kingdom is coming and he'll win that through warfare. Not ordinary warfare, but a darker warfare when he climbed on the cross and he died and he overcame his enemies and yours through the victory of resurrection. And as he did so, he ushered in his kingdom, the age of the spirit upon all people, setting up the new heavens and the new earth when one day death will be defeated for all people, darkness will be banished, kingdom will come in all of its fullness and God will be with his people forever. That is coming. That is the redemptive message of God to us. It's astonishing. It is otherworldly. It is through his son, Jesus. And the question 
that Mary had to grapple with and we have to grapple with is, do you accept that for yourself? Do you believe that this is God's plan for you in Jesus? Do you, do you accept the overall story, the overall theme, the, the overarching thing, but not just that, as magnificent as it is, do you accept your place in the story? That's faith. Faith hears the message, faith sees the grace of God, and faith takes it in. Faith is the, the empty hands that God fills. You might think to yourself, well, that's okay for other people, but it's not really okay for me. Because if other people understood my situation, they would realize that actually it is too bleak for any of this stuff. Um, they, they, they would see that I am too far gone for the good news to reach me. I'm too lost to be found. At least the prodigal turned around came back to the Father. Well, if you think like that, may I respectfully say to you that you're completely wrong. Because as the angel says here, nothing is impossible with God. God can bring light out of the darkness. God can bring life out of nothing. He did it at the beginning. He did it with Mary. He can do it with you. God can bring being out of non-being. He can bring the dead out of the grave. God can bring the captives from their imprisonments. He can bring life to dry bones. Amen? Nothing is impossible for God. His plans never fail. His story shall have a happy ending. And through faith, you enter that story. And all of those blessings are applied to you. I hope the more that you see this and reflect on this and grows your faith for what God can do. And the more you receive it and the more you chew it over and, and, and build your life around it, the more it gives you boldness and, and faith-filled answers to be able to answer his call, to tr trust him, to follow him wherever he sends us. And so my prayer, my hope for us at Foundation Church is that we see the message we receive the grace, and we say, let it be a, to us according to your word. We'll go wherever you send us. In Jesus' name, let's pray.